of, of one sermon, but don't worry if you like missed the first one, it'll, this, this will, it'll still make sense. Uh, but we're kind of going after an idea here. Uh, so, how many of you remember uh, taking pictures with a Kodak camera? Do you remember that? This is my secret test to see if you're old. So if you say yes, sorry. Uh, but do you remember like taking pictures and like, and like do the little thing if you had like a kind of cheaper camera? And then like you got to a certain point where you had to take this thing out of the camera called film. Do you remember that? And then you'd have to take it to a store, put it in a little envelope, write your name on it and give it to the store. And then you'd leave for a couple of days and then you'd come back and they would give you a different envelope with actual physical pictures in it. And you had to wait that many days from when you took the picture to when you saw the picture to find out that grandma closed her eyes in the picture. Do you remember that? How crazy that was? Uh, do you remember Kodak moments? Do you guys remember that? That was a brilliant marketing campaign. Tell me you remember this, that, that they, they branded like the best moments of our lives as Kodak moments. And they did such a good job. I mean, think how brilliant this is that when something impactful would happen in your life, somebody in the room would say, oh, that was a Kodak moment, that they branded your most precious moments in your life, like absolutely amazing. Kodak was a monster of a company. They'd been around since like 1880 and they owned the photography and film and print industry for a hundred years. Their best year ever was in the early 90s. They made $16 billion in sales and that's 90s money. So that's a little bit more than it is today, right? Those dollars are worth more. Um, they were absolutely killing it. They owned like 80 to 90% of the market share of the camera photography industry, which is just unheard of. They absolutely dominated uh, they were making bank on cameras, on film, and on prints. They were making money on all of it, and it was nuts. But probably would notice, if you look around today, that you don't see Kodak anywhere. Well, you'd have to, you could find it. You could find it. Um, some vintage things, maybe. I think they make printers now, which is weird because nobody uses those either. Uh, they just step from one industry into another one that no one cares about. Um, but Kodak declared bankruptcy in 2013. Uh, and I think, yeah, like I said, they still they did some kind of restructuring way, way, way smaller of a company now. Now you can probably guess why. Because Kodak uh, in the 1800s invented film photography. And they owned that industry for a century. Film photography. And in the early 2000s, this thing happened called digital photography, Right? And then everything shifted over. We don't use film anymore. We don't have to take our film to a little place. We can take 37 pictures of grandma and make sure that her eyes are open for at least one of them, right? And we can delete the other ones in an instant. So you could assume, well, of course, Kodak died with film, right? Just like video killed the radio star, <laughs> digital killed the film industry. Um, but do you want to know the craziest part of that story? Do you know who invented digital photography? Kodak. Kodak invented digital photography. Kodak invented the very thing that killed him. Kodak invented digital photography in 1975. They invented a digital camera. Invented the very thing that killed them. Now, how does that happen? 
Because you would assume, right, if you were just guessing the story, hey, they own the film industry, someone else invented digital photography and it eventually undercut their business and it killed it. But that's not what happened. They owned the film photography industry and they invented digital photography and it still killed them. They owned it. How does that happen? What? I'm sure you can imagine as you think about a big company, you know, you know, the different ways it could fail. Failure to change, failure to recognize the world is changing. Um, Failure to let go of the past, I'm sure, played a factor. But if I could add to the list of reasons that Kodak allowed this to happen, is I believe that Kodak had an imagination problem. An imagination problem. They couldn't imagine a world where digital owned everything. They just couldn't imagine that. They couldn't fathom a world where their own invention actually overtook the bulk of what they were already doing. They, and I'm not saying they didn't imagine it at all. They, there's a such thing as a, as a Kodak digital camera. They played the game, but they under-imagined the impact that it would have. They under-imagined. And I guess what I just want to propose to you, like what, just, let's just for fun consider, what if they hadn't? What if, I mean, they had a couple decade head start on everybody else when it comes to digital. What if they had leaned into it? What if they said, hey, we're going to find a way to make this work. We're going to, this is the future. We're going to go after it. They're imagining a better world. Like you could, if they had, you could pull out your phone, flip it over and have a Kodak label on the back of it. Legit. They could have been like the trillion dollar company in the world. They could have been. You could still be talking about Kodak moments. You could be, if they had imagined the future as it was going to be. But they didn't. They missed out. They missed out on a possible future. And what I want you to consider right now is are there possible futures that if you don't use your imagination properly, that you could miss out on. That, that like your life five years from now, 10 years from now could, could look uh, way different than, than what maybe God intends for it to look like. That you could miss out on the life that God wants you to have by under-imagining your future. So in this little one sermon in two parts uh, talking about the power of your imagination. And last week, uh, we pointed out that adults' imaginations are not less powerful than kids. We, we wanted to make sure everybody knew that. Like, your imagination is not less powerful than kids. Adults just use uh, their imaginations different than a kid does. Uh, so you, uh, kids imagine in the present, right? They, 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 toys come alive. They become other things. Adults, we use our imaginations forward, right? We use our imaginations forward in our lives for one of two things, uh, either anticipation or anxiety. Those are the two ways that we use our imagination. And last week, we really looked at uh, the way you can use it that would produce anxiety. And uh, we, we wanted to look at two uh, people in the Bible, father-son duo, Saul and Jonathan. And the way they did this last week, we saw Saul used his imagination to produce anxiety. And this week, we're going to look at his son, Jonathan, using his imagination very differently than his dad. Um, and if you struggle with anxiety, uh, you should check out last week's sermon online. It's, I hope, helpful. Um, so backstory, Israelites are at war with the Philistines. Uh, battles are just ongoing, 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 ongoing. 
Uh, and th- in this part of the war, Israel's doing very bad. It's not going well for them, and uh, morale in the Israelite camp is really, really low. Everybody's kind of has this feeling of impending doom. It's not going well, and uh, also at this point, the Philistines have taken like a key passage, and we'll pick up the story there uh, in First Samuel thirteen twenty-three. It says this: the pass at Michmash had meanwhile been secured by a contingent of the Philistine army. Uh, so what I love about this little story here, we're going to see Jonathan enter it here in a minute. I love this story because it's so jam-packed with little lessons that we can take into our lives. So here we see that the Philistines have taken a uh, strategic location in this war. So if, if you've ever watched any war movies, you, you know that the, there are some parts on the battlefield that are more important than others. You know, so, you know, the field doesn't matter, but this area over here is really important. Like there's strategic areas and most of those areas have to do with like transition points, right? Like a crossroads, really important. A bridge, man, bridges are really important in, in land conflict. Uh, beaches, that transition from water to land. Those places are really strategic and important. And if you're a military leader, you care about those. You, you will fight extra for those. And uh, if you're smart and you're occupying one of them, you're going to have your antenna up for, hey, we could probably, if the enemy was going to attack, it's going to happen here, right? And I just want to say that this is true in life as well that those kind of trans- transition points are strategic points in your life. That when you're going from one thing to another thing, that's a strategic location and uh, your enemy knows it. S- Satan, if he's going to attack you, one of his p- favorite places to attack you is at a transition point in your life, right? You're about to get married, expect, expect an attack. We're fighting more now that we decide to get married. Yeah, of course you are. Is this my life now? Yeah, probably, but you're, you'll be fine. You'll, you'll figure it out, right? You're about to have a baby. And you're fighting a ton, right? It's all of a sudden there's conflict everywhere. And you're like, she's she's crazy. I'm like, no, she's pregnant. It's normal. It's normal. (laughs) You're going to make it. You're going to make it. Uh, When you transition from from, uh, graduating or changing jobs or moving to a new location, those are the times. I just want you to say, hey, if you want to be smart spiritually, your antenna should go up. You should be ready for an attack because Satan knows that you're a little more vulnerable when you're transitioning from one thing to another thing in your life. And that's when an attack comes comes, which is what happens here. So the Philistines are occupying this uh, strategic position. Uh, and here we're about to be introduced to Jonathan. So it's in First uh, Samuel, jumping over to chapter 14, verse 1. One day Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come on, let's go over to where the Philistines have their outpost. But Jonathan did not tell his father what he was doing. So a little about Jonathan. Jonathan is the prince of Israel. His daddy, Saul, is king. So it's a little bold for him to say he's not going to tell his dad what to do, what he was doing here. Uh, But he's prince. And I want to say, man, he's a good prince. Uh, He does not wield his silver spoon. He doesn't have that like entitled attitude that you might imagine some princes having. He seems to hold his position loosely. He cares more about what God is doing in the world than his own status or his own future even. He's a good prince. And he's also young. Jonathan is young in this story, and with that youth comes an idealism. Isn't it strange how those two things tend to go together, youth and idealism? The world has not tainted Jonathan yet. He hasn't gotten old and rusty and crusty and, and, and callous to uh, anything good in the world. He still sees things as they could be more than he sees them as they are. 
And that's one of the reasons I like Jonathan. So um, the place I am in my life right now is, I, I, I don't know if you can associate with this, I, I, I feel like I'm not old yet, and shut up if you think that, but I'm also not young anymore. So I'm kind of in this weird in-between place and I'm trying to hold on to some of my youthful idealism. But one of the things that's happened is I have experience now. And uh, experience is an interesting thing. I think experience, I actually value it. I've, I've learned a lot. Um, but listen to this. As much as experience is an ally of wisdom, experience can be an enemy of your imagination. Experience is an ally of wisdom. It's certainly, and you can glean a lot from the things that you've gone through in your life. However, it can become an enemy of your imagination as you look forward in life because you now, with your experience, you can talk yourself out of a better future because you've been there. You've done that. You know how this goes. We tried that before. I did that before. I know how an attack would go here. I know how a, a plan would go there. You've, you've watched in your own life, you've watched dreams die. You've watched some of your dreams take their last breath. And that did something to you. If you're honest with yourself, that did something to you. There's a different way you look at dreams now that you've witnessed the death of some of them, that now the way you dream is a little, it's a little more cautious, a little more guarded. You got, with your experience, now there's the possibility of cynicism and pessimism and entrenched ways of thinking that you can't get out of now. And think about it, the Kodak had experience, right? Kodak had a century of experience dominating an entire market. But what the experience did for them, like they built these structures in their minds that gave them this success, but the structures eventually worked against them and the walls that they had built blinded them to what the future could be. And so, so what happened was what got them to where they were is the very thing that prevented them from going where they needed to go. And sometimes I wonder, does that play out sometimes in our lives? Like, think about that. Is, there, is it possible that some of the ways you think and some of the strategies you've had in your life that's got you to here might actually now be the things holding you back from getting to the next season, the next thing that God has for you? The very things that helped you get here might prevent you from getting to where God wants you to go. Experience is an ally of wisdom but it might be an enemy of your imagination. So you, it's something to be very aware of as we lean into our imaginations here. Um, now, so Jonathan in this story is just young enough and just dumb enough to imagine a better future and pursue it. Just young enough and dumb enough to imagine a better future and pursue it. Uh, so here's what happens, verses four and five. To reach the Philistine outpost, Jonathan had to go down between two rocky cliffs that were called Bozes and Senna. The cliffs to the north was in front of Michmash. The one to the south was in front of Geba. So picture this scene. Jonathan wakes up one morning, turns to his armor bearer and says, hey, let's go to that outpost, that that, that strategic location that the Philistines have taken, let's go there. So they, they, you know, the armor bearer, I don't know, I just imagined it was like an early morning thing and he's like, okay, whatever. You know, he hasn't his coffee yet and he's like walking around. So they go down into this like place and, and uh, they're, it's, it's not easy. 
as they're, as they're getting closer to this outpost, you know, I just imagine them like crawling through the underbrush and pushing branches aside. They got leaves and dirt everywhere and, and it's not easy. And you can see that this is kind of describing treacherous uh, ground here, treacherous uh, traveling as they get closer to this strategic position. This critical outpost was not easy to reach. And I think there's a lesson in that as well. That as you approach strategic times in your life, it is, it's just more difficult. It, it, specifically spiritually. If you make a decision, hey, um, I'm, I, I'm, man, this coming year, I'm, I'm taking my spiritual life seriously. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lean into some spiritual habits. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get closer to God in 2024. Well, I just want you to know that if you, if you make that decision, it's going to be treacherous as you start to walk towards it. And don't be surprised by that. I think a lot of times, and, and it makes some sense, like to think that, well, I'm making the right decisions now. Shouldn't God just kind of, you know, move the underbrush out of the way as I take steps and it should be easier as I get closer? And I get the logic, but the truth is no. I think a lot of times as you make some right decisions and you get closer to that, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. It's still the right thing to do. But I just don't want you to turn around because you think you're going in the wrong direction. Because something being difficult, actually, in this story, the evidence of them getting closer to the outpost was that it got harder. So don't think, oh, I'm making the wrong decision because it just got real difficult. Not here. Not here. All right, so down in the underbrush. Now, um, verse, verse 6 is crazy. Verse 6 is crazy. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I talk about it probably too often. Um, it's, it's absolutely amazing, and <laughs> I probably shouldn't like it as much as I do because it contains, uh, I just call it, maybe it's just stupid. It's stupid what, what happens in this verse, but I love it. Uh, so verse six, Jonathan says, let's, let's go across to the outpost of those pagans. He's got a little chip on his shoulder. That's part of why I like it. Jonathan said to his arm bearer, perhaps... The Lord will help us for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether he has many warriors or only a few. So just imagine this scene. Again, they're, 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 they've got treacherous uh, traveling eras. They're getting closer. And just imagine they stopped. They got some cover. So the, and the outpost is like up from where they are. And they stop and they start whispering to each other. And Jonathan, they're talking. And I don't know if they know specifically like what's at the outpost. I think they have to know they're outnumbered, right? I mean, anything more than two <laughs> and they're outnumbered. We'll learn later in the story that there's at least 20 guys up in this outpost, at least 20. So they have to know it's a decent amount. It's a strategic location. The Philistines aren't stupid. They're not going to leave it unguarded. And they're looking at it. And it's up from there. They ha- they, they, to, to get there, they're going to have to reveal themselves. They can't, they can't sneak Philistines have good vision from up there. So what does Jonathan say to his armor bearer to convince him to go do this? Hey man, um, God told me that we need to go attack this outpost, so we're going to go do it. Did he say that? That'd be cool. Hey, uh, I saw in a dream last night, we attacked this outpost and won, and I feel like that was from God, so we're going to go attack this. That'd be cool. Hey, I... I saw a sign this morning and I was asking God to show me what he thinks. And, and, you know, a bird flew in this direction. I feel like that was God telling me to go attack this thing. It's a little bit scary, but maybe that would be cool. 
Or, or hey, an angel showed up this morning as I was like going to get breakfast and told me to go attack this thing. Any of that? Did he say any of that? What did he say? Did you catch it? This was his, his motivational speech. Perhaps the Lord will help us. Perhaps. We're, we're moving on a, on a maybe here. <laughs> we're, we're chasing a chance that God might show up. No sign from God, no booming voice from heaven, nothing. You're just, you're just saying, hey, maybe God's going to show up here. Is that, is that a comfort to you? I wonder if that's a personality test. If you like that, there's a certain, it says something about your personality. If you hate it, it says a different thing about your personality. I, I feel like it probably could be. What's he doing here? Why is he doing it? So what I believe is happening here is Jonathan is using his imagination to imagine a possible future. And what he believes about this future is that this future honors God and helps people. So he's pursuing it. He does not know, he does not know that this is what God wants him to do in his life. He doesn't know it. He hopes it. He, he's believing for it. He's taking a step of faith towards it. But he has these, these, this, these principles. I want to honor God. I want to help people. And he's, he, he thinks that, you know, these are, if these are the, the, the guardrails on either side, this is in between. But he doesn't know. God didn't tell him to do it. He's pursuing a perhaps. Now, real quick, I just want to compare this. So if you grew up in church at all, you probably are familiar with the story with Moses and the burning bush. Remember the story? So Moses, he's out watching sheep and there's this shrubbery that's on fire, but it's not burning up. And he walks up to it and it turns out that this is God and God speaks to him, booms from this, this, this bush and says, hey, go deliver my people out of Egypt, right? And, and, and Moses knows exactly what he's supposed to do because God literally tells him what to do. And ironically, Moses kind of argues with him a little bit, but like he is not unclear on what God wants him to do in his life. Compare that to Jonathan over here going, hey, perhaps God will show up if we try this. Do, do you know that that's what God wants you to do? Nope. I think it, maybe, I don't know. Let's try it. If you compare these two, if I, if I may, I think you want this one. You want God to tell you what to do. You want God to have a golden path in your life that you can follow and you're just for sure doing the thing. If you take out, you know, the Bible clearly tells you certain ways to live, right? The Bible tells you certain things about what you should do. There are some, some very obvious things that God says in his word that I do think are God speaking to you. But if you take that, and those are principles, usually those aren't specifics, right? There's no book with your name on it that has like a chapter for each year of your life. Wouldn't that be cool? And you could turn to that page and be like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do this year. You don't have that. So I guess what I want to propose to you that out of these two stories, Moses or Jonathan, you live here most of the time, if not almost all of the time. That most of the time, you're going to be pursuing a perhaps. Most of the time, you're going to have a framework, an idea of how you think you should make decisions, and you're going to have to take a step of faith and say, man, I hope God shows up for this. You're not going to have this. And the reason I bring this up is because I think maybe some Christians like, 
like you want to wait. You want to wait until you know that this is the thing that God wants you to do. And I worry that God's up in heaven going, just go, man, just go. I can work with it. And, and you're waiting on these divine directives for certain decisions. And in your waiting, maybe you're missing out on some things. So I think, again, most of your life, you're living Jonathan's story, not Moses' story. Now, I want to finish. I, wanna, I, want, I want you to see what happens here. I'm going to fast forward a bit because I don't have time to read all of it. Um, they form a plan, a military plan, and it is, I just want to say, terrible. It is a terrible plan. Anybody who knows anything about military strategy would say, this is dumb, Jonathan. You should not go with that. But they do. It's just him and his armor bearer. Uh, and they decide to attack. They decide to take two guys and go attack this outpost that definitely has more than two in it. And here's what happens, uh, verse 13. So they climbed up using both hands and feet. That's how steep it was. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed those who came behind them. They killed some 20 men in all and their bodies were scattered over about a half an acre. And then check out what happened next, verse 15. Suddenly, a panic broke out in the Philistine army, both in the camp and in the field, including even the outposts and the raiding parties. And just then, an earthquake struck and everyone was terrified. What are the odds of that? Anyone? So Jonathan decides for two guys to go up against 20 and... He, he must, he just went Captain America on him. And he, they're, they're, they're just wiping the floor with this outpost. He's going in the front, the armor bearer's guarding in the back. And they're just, they're just taking dudes out left and right. And then just at the right time, a supernatural, well, a natural thing happens at a supernatural time. And boom, the entire Philistine army runs in the opposite direction. God moves right at the time when Jonathan took initiative. God moves right at the time when Jonathan took initiative. Jonathan pursues a perhaps God, and then God shows up and flexes in a way that only God can flex. I think about that. God took this victory. Because I don't know. I don't, I don't know if Jonathan, like I'm, I, I would have to assume that God kind of helped him with the outpost a little bit. That's a big to say that he's just going to walk in there and, and beat 20 guys. Like, I think God was helping him with that. But that's, that's where the victory should have ended. I mean, honestly, they should have lost right then. But not only did they win the outpost, God took that victory, that step of faith, and, and God injects his power into it, sets off this earthquake. And now not only do they win the outpost, but if you read the story, the whole war kind of shifts. All these Israelites who were terrified realized, hey, God's actually with us. And, and they, they move and the Philistines retreat. And it's this momentum shifting event that happens that affects Jonathan's family and his friends and his people. Everyone's life, everyone's situation gets better because Jonathan pursued a perhaps. And I want to zoom in on 
a little detail here. I don't know if you saw it in verse 13 that it said they climbed up using both their hands and feet up this hill. So it was that steep that they couldn't just like walk up the hill. They had to like kind of crawl up the hill. And I don't know about you, but again, if you imagine the scene, he's crawling up to fight. And if I'm approaching a battle, I don't want to be on my hands and knees. <laughs> That's not like the, 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 the posture I want to take into a fight, but it's the only way he could get to it. So what I want to point out here is that sometimes victory requires vulnerability. That he wouldn't even have been able to get to the position of, of attacking if he hadn't been a little vulnerable in approaching it. And again, I just want to say, I think a lot of times, if I may, Christians, we, we tend to avoid those kind of things. We, we look at risk as something that God wouldn't want us to do. And we look at like, well, if I expose this or if I take a risk here, I could get hurt or this bad thing could happen and God wouldn't want me to do that. Is that true? Maybe for some things in your life, maybe it's going to require not only a step of faith, but a step of vulnerability that, hey, I'm going to step into a relationship even though I've been burned before. I'm going to take a risk and have a kid <laughs> and, and change my entire life. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step into a church even though last time I stepped into a church, I got hurt. Like, all of these steps require you to put yourself in a place where you could get hurt or it could go wrong. That doesn't mean you shouldn't take it. Matter of fact, I want to say for many of the things that you have in your life, the only way you would ever potentially experience victory is if you step to places that are vulnerable places for you. The vulnerability is like a prerequisite to some victories in your life. And Jonathan was willing not only to pursue a perhaps, but to put himself in a vulnerable position. But isn't that Aren't those like the ingredients for a miracle? Aren't they? You, you want to walk on water? Well, you got you to gotta swing your leg over the boat, don't you? How are you going to know? How are you going to know the water holds you if you don't take a step out? You want God to catch you? You're going to have to jump. The greater the miracle, the greater the vulnerability a lot of times. And I think there's an order to it. So imagine, imagine with me the opposite. Imagine that Jonathan sits down in the underbrush and goes, hold up a minute. We gotta see if there's gonna be a bush on fire anywhere that'll tell us what to do. And they just sit down there in the underbrush, him and his armor bearer just kind of waiting for God to tell them something. Would have been a really boring story. But what if, what if the order of Jonathan takes a step, Jonathan uh, in faith and in vulnerability does something and then God shows up, that this, this step of initiative, this, this, hey God, I'm not 100% sure that you want me to do this, but I'm also not 100% sure that you don't want me to do this. I think it'll glorify you and I think it'll help others. I'm gonna go. And God looked down on this and smiled and said, get him, man, go get him. And then they're, they're, they're wiping the floor with this outpost and God's like, all right, let's do, let's do. And then boom, the earthquake hits and the army moves forward. God just enhances the thing and blesses the thing and turns it into something that Jonathan couldn't have even imagined. Do you think he would have drew, drew that one up in the dirt? Like, all right, we're going to go up here and attack and then God's going to start an earthquake right at this, right? Yeah, right. He took initiative. He took the step. He was vulnerable and then God moved and then God moved. 
What if that's the order? And as you think about your life here in the next five years, the next 10 years, wonder what, what your life could look like if you, if you took a page out of Jonathan's playbook here and said, I'm going to pursue a perhaps. And again, there's got to be some parameters around this. I'm not, so, I'm not saying, hey, take out all your money and go buy lottery tickets. Just say, here, it's pretty big. Like, God. And then tell your wife, like Pastor Adam said, pursue a perhaps, you know. There's some parameters, right? Again, honored God, helped people. There were some ways he was making these decisions. But what if you took a step? What if you took, took a, a step of faith, a step of vulnerability, trusting that, hoping that, believing that God was going to move in that? wonder what your life could look like five years from now, ten years from now. So uh, what I want to do here, I just have this feeling that for many of you, if we're talking about like using your imagination for something like this, that I'm suggesting that you should use your imagination pointed forward in your life to imagine a, a, a better future, that that's actually why God gave you your imagination. I believe that, that God gave you imagination as the birthplace of amazing things, that God wants your future to start here, that that's why he gave it to you and you should aim it forward to imagine what he could do with your life. My guess is though that many of us use our imagination for the opposite, to come up with all the scenarios that are terrifying and harmful and it's the anxiety producing imagination. So what I wanna do is I kinda wanna, I wanna give you some I guess it's a practical steps to use your imagination forward in your life, what you would maybe call dreaming uh, of a better future. And I just want to give you some practical steps in that. So here's the first one. And this one's really important, really important. I have experience in this. <laughs> when you sit down to dream, to imagine what God could do in your life, don't start with how. Don't start with how. You don't start with how. If you start with how, you're never going to do anything. You're never going to do anything. You need to, some of you, I know your personality, some of you in this room, you need to know every step, you know, step one and part A, B, and C to every single step, right? You need to know all the details before you would ever take the first one. But I just want you to, like, in the very beginning, when you're just dreaming, you don't do any of the how yet. How is it? We'll get there. I'm just saying you don't start with it. Because if you start with how, you'll kill a dream before it ever even is born. You'll kill it. It will never see the light of day because you will how it to death. You will how it to death. So you don't start with how. You got to let it grow a little bit. You start with why. You start with what. You, you allow God to move in that. And then you will hit how. And here's the, the next thing. Uh, and I think this is really important, again, for you very practical people. Uh, when you get to how, and you will, because you need to know that first step, right? A dream that's way out there, you can't just say, oh, I want that to be someday. What are you doing to go towards that? Nothing. Like, no, you need to, you're going to have to have some intermediate. You need to know what's the next thing, right? So you will have to build out some steps, right? So the next thing is how has to include God how has to include God. And, and if I could say it another way, if you don't need God to imagine the thing that you imagined or, to, or to, to, to do the thing you imagined or to do the thing that you dreamed, if you don't need God, it isn't from God. 
Because, and here's my justification for that. I don't think God gives you you-sized dreams. If, if God is the source of the dream, if God is the one who's working in your imagination, I don't think they're gonna be so small that you can pull it off without him. I just don't think that God gives out those sized dreams. God gives out God-sized dreams, which means God is required as a part of the process of accomplishing the thing. And think about it. So anything that's God-sized, that means if it was you-sized, you'd be like, okay, here's what it is and here's the steps I'm gonna take to get it. But when God grows it, it stretches a little bit. And in that how process, as it stretches, there's gonna be some gaps. You're not gonna be able to pull it off without him. And again, I wanna say Jonathan had to believe that God was gonna show up. Perhaps God will help us. Like he, he didn't know every step of the way, this is how I'm gonna take this guy out and this is how we're gonna do it. He didn't have a perfectly worked out strategy. He left room in his dream for God. And I, I just wanna say, th this one I really wanna encourage you because I think a lot of times we dream cautiously, we dream, like I dream me-sized dreams. You dream you-sized dreams. That's what you tend to do. And I want you to dream in such a way that God has to show up. And then the third thing, saturated in prayer, saturated in prayer. And what I mean is to include God in the imagining process, include God in it. Uh, my, my professor, uh, I think it was spiritual disciplines class, he called it a sanctified imagination. And that was his fancy way of saying, hey, you want God to uh, be a part of your imagining. You want God to direct things. You want God to purify things and grow things and stretch things as you're imagining them. You want God to be a part of the process. So what I would do is I would imagine rolling a whiteboard into the throne of almighty God. Can you imagine doing that? Hey God, I've got some ideas which is an absurd thing to think, but some, God's inviting you to do this. He wants, this is where he wants to start your future, right here. So you include him in the process, in prayer. And I just, I just wanna press on you a little bit. I think a lot of the way we use prayer is kind of silly. It's kind of small. That the, the bulk of our prayers are, are so little like, like you pray stuff that God was going to do anyway. You know, it's like, like you're trying to give God a win. You know, like, hey, God, help us get there safely. It's a, it's a five-minute drive. He's probably going to get it, you know? He's, he's pulled it off every time. Like, your little prayers. And, and here's the thing. This is, this is what happens. I think we pray small prayers sometimes because we think we're supposed to. Like, we're, it's like, it's like a humble thing. It's a, if I pray something big, I feel, I feel wrong. Like, I shouldn't ask God for big things. So I ask him for little things because you feel like a kid at Christmas asking for the big thing. And like, you know, now that that's stupid, I shouldn't ask for the big thing. I should ask for a small thing because I'm more likely to get a small thing. You think like that. But the part of the equation that's messed up is that when the kid asks you for something big, you are limited. And so is your bank account. But when you're asking God, consider who you're asking. Consider who you're asking. This is the all powerful, unlimited God of the universe. When you walk up to him and go, hey, hey, this is the only thing that I want. I actually don't think that asking for small things honors God. Uh, I love this sentence. It's a Mark Batterson thing. He says, uh, God honors bold prayers and bold prayers honor God. 
God honors bold prayers and bold prayers honor God. That actually the bigger prayers, the, the huge dreams that are kind of outrageous, those honor God because they are more uh, in line with the size of who, what you believe about him, right? If you ask him for small things, that maybe that means that you think small things about him. But if you ask him for big things, that's an honoring thing to God because you're believing a lot about who he is and what he's capable of. Stop praying little piddly prayers. Pray big things, man. Man. What if, that, what if that was your mentality? Like, I want to find a way to honor God by the size of my prayers. What if that's like one of the things that you started thinking about for this coming year and maybe for the next five years? I want to pray in such a way that the size of the thing I ask for honors him because it's so big that I'm saying something about him. Not me, I'm saying something about him. Man. Perhaps. Perhaps God will show up in that. What if he smiles when we pray big prayers? What if he doesn't react like a parent when their kid asks for like a car? You know, like, selfish brat. What if that's not God? What if God's up in heaven going, come on, ask me, ask me. Doesn't he say that? Haven't you read those verses? Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. Like those are the things he says. And James says, if you do not have, it's because you do not ask. Ask, ask. Think about this. Once a prayer reaches God, Satan cannot stop God from answering it. Do you realize that? Is that a Satan? You think when God starts to move, Satan's going to smack his hand? Nah. Once God decides to move, Satan can't do anything. So if that's true, what's Satan's strategy? To get you not to pray it? If I'm Satan, I'm not trying to give him ideas, but I'm pretty sure he's already using this one. He's trying to get you to not pray it. Because the moment you pray it, it's in God's hands. And he can't stop him. So he's trying to stop you. Open it up. So set aside some time and dream. Set aside some time and imagine and and, and do it in the presence of God. Let me end with this. This is a crazy verse in Ephesians 3.20. Now to him, God, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or Imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. No matter what you imagine up, no matter matter what you dream up, even if you think it's big, even if it's terrifying to you, God's like, oh, that's cute, because I can do even more than that. So whatever the edges of your imagination are, God's beyond that already. I just, man, encourage you to open this up. Your imagination is supposed to be the birthplace of your God-given future. Use it right. Use it right. Pray with me. God, I pray for the person who has uh, shrunk their dreams down to their size. They feel like maybe they're supposed to. I pray for the person who's watched so many dreams die that they're hesitating right now to even begin to dream a new one because it opens up pain that they felt in the past, Lord, and they don't want to feel it again. Lord, I pray that you would be present in that. I pray that we would not 
dishonor you with small prayers. I pray that we would know that you didn't knit us together in our mother's womb for small things, that you didn't come and die on the cross in our place for our sins for us to just run out the clock here, Lord. Pray that we would honor you by dreaming big things and believing big things. And we would step into a better future that starts right in our own imaginations. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.